Good morning, everyone. It is great uh, to see you all here. Uh, welcome to those who have, who have joined us on the, on the stream. Charlie said, my name's Andy, I'm the other minister here. And we're carrying on with this series that we began last week, looking at God's story, your story, and our story. Uh, today, reflecting really on the first three chapters of Genesis. But, but as I begin, uh, Daddy, Dad rather, and little Jimmy are sitting on the sofa watching TV. And, and Jimmy turns to his dad and he says, where does poo come from? Why are kids so fascinated with, 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 with this stuff? Uh, Dad's a bit taken back by the question. It's a long time since he did biology. And he kind of muddles through. And you know what it's like as parents? You pretend you know what you're talking about. Uh, whereas actually most of the time you've got no idea. Uh, but anyway, the, the discussion went downhill really. And, and at the end, Jimmy looked a little bit confused. And so he said cautiously, what about Tigger? <laughs> it's so easy to miss the point, isn't it? To ask the wrong question or to answer the wrong question. Uh, and I expect that's especially true when we come to the first three chapters of Genesis. And I suspect that many of the original audience that heard this text had no interest in many of the questions that we have uh, when we come to the text. Uh, after all, they would have believed that the earth was flat. They didn't know that the earth was spherical and moving through space. They didn't know the sun was much further away from us than the moon they believed that the sky was solid rather than vaporous. And so on and so on and so on. And the interesting thing is that God doesn't deem it necessary to put them right. There's not a single instance that I'm aware of in the whole Bible in which God reveals to Israel a science that is beyond their own culture. Not because their science is correct, but because God always speaks within a particular culture, within a particular time, and within a particular place. And in a sense, accommodates himself to that, to that culture. Even as he challenges uh, that same culture or worldview. So in a sense, I think when we come to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we kind of need to leave aside our own questions and our own agendas and, and try and hear what the text is saying to us. Because uh, I think in these, in these passages, God has, has something important to communicate to us, something more important than history, something more important than science. So we're going to take a whistle-stop tour We've got about 20 minutes through Genesis 1 to 3. Nowhere near enough time to, to do it fully justice. But, but in a sense, trying to set this story, see how this story begins. Pick out some key themes, some key ideas that kind of send us on our way, as it were, as we, as we continue to read and, and reflect on, on, on this story, our story, God's story. 
And so if you're, many of you will be familiar with this, but if you're not, sorry, that's the flat earth. I forgot to do that one. Genesis, I forgot to show that. That's quite a clever slide, isn't it? Genesis 1 to 3, very briefly. So Genesis 1, the first little bit of Genesis 2, seven days of creation. Uh, And then the rest of Genesis 2, we have this story of the Garden of Eden, and we heard a little bit of that. And then in Genesis 3, what has become known as the fall. And I guess most of us are familiar with that story in Genesis 1, and about how it's structured around a seven-day sequence. It's kind of a bit like, it feels a bit like a responsive reading. Uh, and there, there are some people that think it was probably, it, it may have originally been written as liturgy, to be said in the, in the temple. Uh, so you get this pattern, whereby God creates, and then God sees that it is good, and then there's the kind of response, and there was morning, and there was evening, the first day, the second day, the third day. And on each of the first six days, we find that pattern being repeated. So God makes and, and God sees that it is good. And then there was evening and there was morning. Right up to the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, God takes a rest, we are told. I wonder if you were a faithful Jew hearing that account hearing an account of a seven-day construction project. Your mind, you know, how, you know what it is? We make connections. We hear something and it, oh, it reminds me of that. Or, oh, I hadn't noticed that before. If you, if you were a faithful Jew and you heard about a seventh-day construction period, what you would think about is temples. So you might start initially with the consecration of the tabernacle when when Israel is is in the promised land and God tells them to build this kind of mobile temple. You can read about it in Exodus 39 and 40. Seven days to consecrate the temple. Or you might remember the account of of Jerusalem's temple being constructed under King Solomon. Seven years it took. I know a little bit about that because Sarah was trying to teach that in Sunday in Powerhouse last week. Uh, In ancient thought, the number seven was associated with the construction of temples. And so the faithful Jew would have made that connection. Is this talking about a temple? Some 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 kind of temple. We wouldn't think of that, because we're not, well, wouldn't think about that, would we? I bet none of us have read that and thought, temples, uh, but the faithful Jew would. Uh, and of course, the climax of the whole account comes in day seven. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. Everything was finished, so God turned off his computer paused his email and had a nap. That sounds good, doesn't it? Although that's not what the text is saying. Uh, This is Psalm 132, or some of it. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. 
And again, it's talking about the temple here, really. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, are seen as God's resting place. In ancient thought, the main function of the temple wasn't just that people would have somewhere to go and worship. It was rather to provide a place for God, God's space, a sacred space, the place where God dwells. They were places in a sense where heaven, which is God's realm, and and earth, which is ours, were joined together, were united. This this place where heaven and earth coexist, if you like, are held together. God's not just building a universe. He's building a place to live. A place to dwell. The temple was where God dwelt. It's where he sits enthroned. It's where, if you like, it's the control room. The place from which he reigns. The Old Testament scholar John Walton, I found, found this illustration in the week. He, he uses the illustration of a newly, I keep skipping slides, there you go. A newly elected president taking up residence in the White House. He doesn't do that so that he can... So he fights the election campaign. He wins all that effort. He doesn't do that so that he can kick back, go up to the Lincoln Room and sleep all day. The work of the election is done and now he can get on with the important business of running the country. When God takes his rest on the seventh day, it means that he's come to take up residence. Come to inhabit the temple that he has built and to begin to rule. There's another thing about temples. In ancient times, any temple, not just any temple, Any temple worth its salt contained a statue of the God who was being worshipped. And the statue, in a sense, imaged that God, a visual representation of that God. So people would know what the God looked like, but also, in a sense, would represent the power and the presence of God. So right in the temple, there's this image of the God. And somehow that image becomes the focus for for God's presence. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature. It's interesting, is it? God's 
God rules. And God says to mankind who he has created, you go and rule. Charlie, Charlie mentioned this last week, but, but Tom Wright uses the image of an angled mirror. He says, on the one hand, humans are to kind of reflect God's wise and loving rule down into the earth. So the, the mirror reflects downwards God's rule, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's care. To represent God, if you like, by looking after creation. By building healthy and life-giving ways of living together and being together. And on the other hand, Wright says that when we bring our worship to God, we do so as representatives of the whole creation. And in a sense, reflect the worship of the whole created order back to its creator. Kind of, I find it helpful to think of being made in the image of God as a vocation, if you like. This is what our lives as, as individuals and together as, as human societies are, are meant to be about. Imaging God in the world. Reflecting God's love and care for creation to creation and somehow summing up the praises of creation to God. Does that make sense? Some of you nodding good. I haven't got Miles here today. I need Miles here. Carry on, Andy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then we get to Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 feels very, very different. But in many ways, it's telling the same story as Genesis 1, just in a very, very different way. Uh, it focuses, you'll know this if you're familiar with it, it focuses on life in this idyllic garden, which is called Eden. It's a place that is characterized by beauty and by fruitfulness. It is a home suitable for God. And suitable for Adam, whom God fill, for, forms from the dust of the ground of his partner, Eve. And halfway through the account in, in verse 15, we read this, that the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. It's interesting, whenever those two words, till and keep, are used together in the Old Testament. Guess what context they're used within? The temple. It's the words that describe what priests do in the temple as they take care of that space and, they ask, and as they help people to worship the one true God. It's the same vocation. To take care of creation and to help people worship the one true God. What I believe the writer of Genesis 2 wants us to know is that, is that Eden, the garden, is this temple-like sacred space where God is so present. 
in all his life-giving power that we find him walking around, taking in the view, enjoying the view, and looking for his human companions. In this garden, this temple, this, this holy of holies, life flourishes in the way that God wants life to flourish. And human beings flourish in the way that God wants us to flourish. And all creation flourishes in the way that God wants all creation to flourish. And it is all extremely good. And in the middle of, in the middle of it all, humanity is tasked We're taking care of it and enabling the worship of the one true God. It's great, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's wonderful. What could possibly go wrong? Famous last words. What could possibly go wrong? And of course, we know what went wrong. Started with a question. Did God really say? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that really what God said? And it continues with the choice. The woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So it starts with a question and then the action and it ends with a game of hide and seek but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you is that not one of the saddest verses in the whole of scripture maybe that is the saddest verse in the whole of scripture where are you Adam and Eve had it all And they blew it. And for what? And it's meant to get us in in the gut. Why? To feel that that pain, that, that bewilderment. It was just thrown away so easily. So needlessly. And of course that is not the end either. Actions have consequences, and Adam and Eve are deported from the garden and sent into exile. And I use that word exile deliberately because that's the connection any Jew engaging with this text after about the 6th century BC would have made. And they would recognize their own story. In this story, they would remember how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and set them apart and given them a land so that they may worship God and show the world what it looked like when a community truly lived out its God-given vocation. That's what the law is all about. Creating a community which shows the world this is what it's like. When God reigns and everybody can flourish and creation can flourish. But they had failed in their vocation. 
they had eaten the fruit, as it were, and they too had been driven out of their land and taken off into Babylon and into exile. And I, I imagine that the Jew languishing in this strange land in slavery, as it were, and think, this is our story. I know this story. This is what's happened to us. For the Jews, this was their story. And sadly, too often it's been the church's story. And sadly, it's also my story and, and your story. For in many ways, we all fail to properly image God in the world. And at the heart of it, it's a failure of vocation. It's not just that Adam and Eve broke a command. It's not just some kind of, of moral failure. It's much deeper than that. It's a failure of allegiance. Did God really say, well, actually, I'm not going to listen to God. Instead of giving allegiance to the creator God, the man and woman gave allegiance to the serpent, to one of the creatures in the garden. They believed him over God. They trusted him over God. They're disloyal. And as a result, they failed to live in the way that they were meant to live. As people channeling the worship of creation to God. And channeling his stewardship into the world. It was a vocational failure. As much as a moral failure. And ultimately I think that's what sin is. Refusing to play our part. In God's purposes for the world. For creation. As a whole. Settling for second best. I don't know if any of you saw the recent BBC adaption of Around the World in 80 Days. Anyone see that? A couple of people, people nodding. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I gather it was a very, very, very loose adaption of the book. Uh, but in, in the BBC uh, series, you have this guy, Phileas Fogg, who, who, who journeys around the world in 80 days. Uh, and... In, in, in the BBC series, there's a kind of twofold motivation. One is a bet he made that he wouldn't be able to do it. A typical man. <laughs> uh, but the second uh, motivation that kind of emerges as the story progresses is that many years ago, he walked away from the woman he loved. He was afraid. He was afraid of commitment. He was afraid of, he was afraid of a relationship. Uh, and he walked away and he settled for a mundane, meaningless life, idling, idling his days away in his rich gentleman's club. It wasn't that Fogg had committed a terrible sin. It was just that he'd settled for a, a life of self-absorption, of a small, safe, meaningless life, without love, without joy, and, and without beauty. And as the story gets towards the end, you can see the penny drops. 
And he realizes, what have I, what have I been living for? What have I devoted my life to? And so the trip becomes this kind of shot at redemption. So how does this apply to us? I guess for me, I raise, I, first I'm reminded of this, remember this quote from Frederick Beatner. I think we've used it before, probably Charlie. I can't remember I've used it. I mean, it. It's familiar, so I think Charlie's used it before. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I love that quote. The place where you are most fully yourself and where the world needs you where there is a Andy or a Charlie or a Sarah or a... There's lots of Sarahs here. <laughs> I said one Sarah and then I looked at another Sarah. Or a Cheryl. Spaced whole. But it also raised sorts of questions for me. It raised questions about parenting. Many, many of you are parents. Or grandparenting. Uh, Perhaps the most important gift that we can give our kids, the children out in Powerhouse, our grandchildren, is the knowledge that they're made for something bigger than their own happiness or their own self-importance. The idea that the most important thing is not the exam result, not the career they construct for themselves, not the salary they earn, not even how happy they are. To teach them this, to teach them that their gifts and their skills and their insights and their passions are given to them so that in some way they might image God in the world and some way continue that work of creation. And that's true whether they're running a corporation cleaning the floors, changing nappies. What, what would it mean, I wonder, if we were to encourage our children to, to create beauty? Beauty that enhances the lives of those around them and reflects the beauty of God and the creativity of God. Art, music, relationships of beauty. What would it mean if we encouraged our kids to reflect God's care and commitment to all people by devoting their skills and gifts to empowering those at the bottom of the pile in a way that demonstrates God's care for all? What would it mean if we taught our kids to build businesses that put people before profit? And in a world where climate change now seems inevitable, well, it's already happening, how can we encourage our kids to image God's care for the sparrow and the lily of the field? Actually, on the last one, it may be our kids that are teaching us. On all of them, it may be that our kids who teach us. What does it mean to model lives which put worship of God front and center of who we are? and channel the praise of creation back to the creator who made it and who loves it. I haven't got any answers, I've just got lots of questions. But maybe they're questions for all of us to reflect on and, and to dwell on. We've got this 
this vacation, this gift, this privilege, this joy of God working in us and through us. What does that mean? But as we go back to our story, the scene is set. God's ultimate goal for creation is to dwell with humanity and to establish humans as wise rulers over the earth, to extend his act of creation, to focus the prayers and worship of creation. Sadly, humanity has fallen at the first hurdle, and now Adam and Eve find themselves in exile. But God has not finished. And the story is not finished. To be continued. Let's pray. And for God, for God, Father God, thank you that in a sense our stories are, are still to be continued. And Lord, we see ourselves in that story of, of Adam and Eve of disobedience, of disloyalty, of taking what is not ours to take. Of hoarding our gifts and our skills, of falling short in so many ways. And Lord, that story of, for me, that story of Phileas Fogg echoes as well, that, that sense of how easy it is to settle for second best because it seems too risky or too dangerous or too awkward. And Lord, yet you call us into partnership with you. You call us to image you into the world. Lord, that is our vocation. That is our, our gift. That is what gives our life meaning and purpose. Um, Lord, may we be people who who ask the difficult questions of ourselves, who reflect on who we are and why we are. Lord, may we be people who bring beauty into the world, who bring healing into the world. Lord, may we be people, as we were thinking earlier, who live out these values that you have given to us because they show the world something of who you are. And something of how you care for the world. And so Lord, be with us in the questions. And as we seek to live out the answers. Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.